Amen. Well, let me welcome you to our second week of five, where together we're thinking about five to survive. We're sort of digging through the scriptures, asking what are the things that matter most? One of the ways that you could say this is what are the, the most important commands that God has given to us? Last week, I gave you a springboard text. I said to you that this would be a passage that we would reference every week in this series because it really serves as the, as the foundation of everything else that we're learning. You don't have to turn to it today. We'll put it on the screens. It's Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13 where Solomon writes, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. At the end of the day, this is what matters most. I said last week, Solomon teaches us this is our one thing. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, or this is the duty of the whole of mankind. Last week, we considered the first of the five to survive, which was the command in James 1.27, which says that we are to show compassion to those that are hurting, to the widows and to the orphans, that we are to be compassionate to them. We are looking at the five most important commands. Now, let me ask you a question. When you were growing up, do you remember what was the most important family rule that you were expected to obey? Could, could you identify it? If, if somebody said to you, tell me, as you were being raised, what were the most important things that you were expected to do or to not do? Uh, maybe there were, there were a lot of family rules, of course, a lot of things that your parents taught you, but could you identify the top two or three or four or five that were the most important? So I was thinking about this this week, and so I polled our kids, our four children, by the way, who are all grown now, and, uh, uh, and three of them have their own children, and uh, or, let me rephrase that, two of them have their own child, and the third is on the way. But anyway, um, and everybody said, oh, he's going to be a granddaddy again. Well, so I polled all of our adult children, and I said, can you tell me, what do you, what do you remember as the most important rules. They gave me five. I want to share them with you. Not in any particular order of importance, I should say. All right? So they said, uh, we were always told to make your bed in the morning. That's a pretty good rule. Now, it doesn't have eternal impact necessarily, but it's pretty, a pretty good rule for starting your day. Tracy would always say, and, and uh, two of our girls remembered this and said this, Tracy would always say, particularly to our daughters, she would say, make a little dip, not a big splash. Make a little dip, not a big splash. And what she was teaching them was walk with humility. As you, when you come into a room, walk into that room or into that circumstance with humility. Make a little dip, not a big splash. Number three, a uh, couple of them said, uh, I, we remember you saying, I would tell them this, don't speak with a knife in your voice. By the way, I think it's interesting, they remember these little sayings, not the rule per se, but the way that it was said. Don't speak with a knife in your voice. That means don't talk, talk with sharp tones. Be kind to one another. One of them, I can't believe they didn't all say this, one of them said, obey immediately, no whining. That's a good rule. Don't argue, don't whine, but when we give you a, a, a command or a, a rule to follow, obey it immediately. 
And then uh, uh, three of them actually mentioned this one. So this one stuck. And we would really communicate this as they became adolescents and into their teenage years. And they would be going out of the house, you know, those years where they start driving and that sort of thing. And we would always say, remember your last name. Like, like, uh, like make sure you don't forget who you are uh, as you go out and begin to make your, your decisions. So they said those were the things that we remember. I wonder what yours would be. Uh, in our passage in Mark chapter 12, it is this question of priority that's being posed to Jesus. He's being asked the question by the Pharisees about what, how do you prioritize the commands that God has given us? Now, Matthew 22 records this exact same interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And in both of these passages, Jesus is being quizzed. He's being quizzed by the scribes and the Pharisees about religious matters and moral matters and civic duties and religious truth. And what they're seeking to do in all of their questions is to trap him in his answers and find some reason that they could accuse him of something. And so after the questions go back and forth and he's answering all of these, these questions, he's asked really what is the question of the day. It's not just a question they asked Jesus, but this is a question that the religious leaders loved to debate about. You'll see it in verse number 28. Look at it, Mark 12 and verse number 28. At the end of the verse, here's the question, which is the first commandment of all? Let me rephrase it. Here's the question. What is the greatest commandment? Of all the commandments that God has given us, which is the greatest commandment? Now, you should know, by the way, that the Jewish uh, religious leaders, the rabbis, taught that there were a total of 613 laws in the Torah, both positive and negative commands, 613 specific commands in the law of Moses that had been given to the Jewish people. And it was a favorite pastime, a, a, a favorite uh, philosophical and religious debate of the religious elites to uh, argue about of the 613, which is the most important. By the way, I brought to the platform today my prayer shawl, and I'm not going to unfold it because it'll make a mess if I do, but I particularly wanted you to see today these strings hanging on the prayer shawl. Have you ever been in an Orthodox Jewish community? If you've been maybe to places like New York or some other cities, there aren't that many Orthodox communities here in our area. But, uh, but if you go to a place where there are a lot of Orthodox Jews, or certainly if you travel to the Holy Land, oftentimes you'll see this. Uh, as you watch Jewish people walking uh, down the street, you'll see that hanging just out from underneath their shirt or their jacket will be these strings. You ever wonder what those strings are about? Um, this is, this action, now they don't put a prayer shawl, I should say, they don't put a prayer shawl under their, under their jacket. They have a a, a, a garment, a t-shirt, if you will, that they wear that has these strings as well. This is a prayer shawl that you would put over your shoulders and head to pray. But, but, but these strings are actually commanded in the book of Numbers. Uh, in, in the book of Numbers, uh, the law is given, or, or, or Moses says, that you shall make a four-cornered garment. And on each corner you shall put these strings. 
And these strings are there to represent all 613 laws. So you'll see these Jewish uh, men walking uh, and, and holding the strings or counting the strings. Now, there aren't 613 here. They're, they're meant to represent the 613. But as they see these strings, they think of each of the 613 laws. And these would be laws that they would have to remember and they would have to obey in order to be and to remain right with God. Now imagine this Pharisee, this scribe, speaking to Jesus. He's got his stringed garment. He would have certainly been wearing it. And he would have, and, and Jesus, in all likelihood, would have been wearing it as well. And, and he would have looked at these strings and he would have perhaps held them and said, Master, of all of the laws that we're to remember, which is the most important command that we are to follow? That's the question of verse number 28. And so Jesus gives his answer. And it's an answer that all of us ought to pay attention to. It's number two of the five to survive. So let's read it. I'm in Mark 12, verse number 28. One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, having heard the debate going back between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees, and perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? What's the greatest commandment? So Jesus answers him in verse 29 and says, the first of all the commandments is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thine heart, with all of thy soul, and with all of thy mind, and with all of thy strength. This is the first commandment. It's a very clear answer. The second is like it, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, you have said the truth, for there is but one God, and there is none other but he. By the way, notice that now this scribe, unknowing that he's speaking to God in the flesh, he now begins to instruct Jesus to affirm the answer of Jesus. You're right, rabbi. You have given, teacher, the correct answer. Verse 33, he goes on to say, and to love him with all of the heart and with all of the understanding and with all of the soul and with all of the strength and to love your neighbor as himself, this is more than the entire system of burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow. And when Jesus saw that he had answered him discreetly or wisely, Jesus said unto him, you are not far. From the kingdom of God. And after that, no man dared ask him a question. I want you to write this down because we're considering what are the most important things. The question of the day posed to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And here's his answer. The greatest of all the commandments is the command to worship God. This is the answer of Jesus. The greatest of all the commandments is the command to worship God. Now, you may think, well, we just did that. 
We just stood and sang four worship songs together. I can check that box for the week. I have fulfilled the greatest commandment. But Jesus didn't say the greatest commandment is to sing worship songs together. Jesus said the greatest commandment is that we would worship God. In fact, he says it this way, that we would love God. The greatest commandment is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's talk about it today. I want you to begin by writing down this fundamental truth. Don't ever forget it. Here's what you and I must know. Worship is a choice. Write it down, please. Worship is a choice. It is a choice that we make. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? His response in verses 29 and 30 is a direct verbatim quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want you to hold your finger in Mark 12. Go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Look in chapter number 6, right near the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible. Look at chapter number 6, beginning in verse number 4. Moses says, hear, O Israel. I've told you this before, that the Hebrew word H-E-A-R, hear, or the translated hear, is the word Shema. This is the great Shema, known in Israel, known in Hebrew as the Shema. It is the fundamental reality, the baseline truth, the bedrock foundation of everything Judeo-Christian. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. Verse 5, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Moses commands in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5, love the Lord your God. Jesus quotes him, it's recorded in Mark 12 as well as in Matthew 22, where Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment, that you would love the Lord your God. And so we have a Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 6. We have a Greek word in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, all, uh, both of which words are translated love. And the word love in the Hebrew, when Moses said love the Lord your God, the word means to long for or to be endeared to, not to make yourself endeared to, but to endear to yourself, to long for or to make one your beloved. The command in the Hebrew is beloved, make God beloved in your heart. Long for him. Then when he's quoted in the New Testament, both in Mark and in Matthew, the Greek word, as many of you will know, is agopal. It's love in action. It means to treat with affection. Here's what the word means. When we are commanded to love God, to choose to love or to worship God, we are commanded to have a longing for God, to endear God to ourselves in such a way that we desire him and we treat him with affection. I think you'll agree with me that all of those descriptors speak about more than simple reverence or simple awe 
that idea that God is exalted and awe-inspiring, which is absolutely true. It's the beginning point. But these words speak of a much more intimate relationship, of intentional devotion. When we say that loving God or worshiping God is a choice, it is a choice because it is in response, it is an attitude of affection toward God, which is in response to a command. You've heard the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. You shall have an affection, a longing for God so full in your heart that you would act lovingly, that you would desire to have this intimacy with him. You shall love the Lord. And in order to, to obey that command, we must engage the will. If y'all are listening, I want you to shout amen. amen. Loving God, worshiping God requires me to do something. It requires me to engage my will. Worship is not passive, it is active. Worship is not in neutral. I will worship as something happens within me that I don't understand or can't explain, and I'm just now responding. No, worship is an intentional engaging. I decide to engage my will. You can... And plenty of people do decide not to respond in obedience to the command. Love God with all of your heart. Engage your will to have an affection, a desire, a longing for, to endear God in a way that expresses a deep love and affection for him. Plenty of people don't do that. In fact, it might be true to say most of us don't do this. But this is the greatest command. I must choose to obey it. I would secondly say to you that worship is not coerced. It's volitional. I must decide to do it. Thirdly, I would say to you, worship is not emotional. And I don't mean to say we don't experience emotion when we worship. We do. But worship is not emotional. Worship is purposeful. It is intentional. It is something, as I've mentioned, that we decide to do based not on feelings. You know, maybe this is best illustrated in the marriage relationship. Over the years in ministry, I have officiated at hundreds of wedding ceremonies. Hundreds of couples have stood before me, and I have walked them through the understanding of biblical marriage. I have heard them express their vows to one another in front of me, in front of God, in front of their family and friends, and I have pronounced them husband and wife. And in doing so, I have always challenged these men and women to love one another. But in all of those weddings, never once, listen to me, never a single time have I ever said, do you promise to feel love every moment of every day? I've never asked that question. Do you promise that your emotions will always be fully engaged so that you will feel love? But here's what I have said. Do you promise to love? Regardless of how things are going, regardless of how you feel about it, do you promise 
to love. We could put those definitions from earlier in there. I was saying to those husbands and wives, grooms and brides, do you promise to long for? Do you promise to endear yourself to? Do you promise to make your spouse your beloved? Do you promise to have love in action, to treat with affection? These are the vows that we make. And here's what God says. That's what, that's what loving me is. It's what worshiping me is. It is when you engage the will and you make the choice that I will worship God, not out of emotion, but out of a purposeful, not coerced, but a volitional act and choice of my will. Worship is a choice. But I might also say to you, just so you don't misunderstand, that worship is not a robotic response. It's not a mindless sort of adoration of God. But rather, we choose to worship God in response to his worth. So I choose to worship him in obedience to his command, but the basis upon which I worship him, the, 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 the force behind my worship is his worth. You see this in verse number 29. Well, it's in verse number 5 of Deuteronomy 6. But you can go back to Mark chapter number 12. In Mark 12 and in verse number 29, Jesus says... The first of all commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And this again is quoted directly from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. The Lord is one Lord. By the way, what you have in that verse is this concept, this theological truth of what we would call monotheism. How many gods are there? There is one God. Uh, are there many paths to God? No, there's one path. Why? Because there's one God, which means there's one truth. There are not many gods. And when Moses spoke this to the Israelites, they just come out of Egypt. They had seen the multiplicity of those Egyptian pagan gods. They knew of the sun gods and the moon gods and the star gods and the gods of the rivers and the god of harvest and, and the gods of fertility and all of these multiplicity of pagan gods. And here's what Moses declares and Jesus affirms. There are not many gods. There is one God. And that means that that one God is unique, that he stands alone, that he is holy and that he is exalted. And when I know who he is, that value that comes with him, if there's only one, he's not mingled among the many, he is the only one. In economics, there is the law of supply and demand. And as supply diminishes, value and demand increases. And I hate to apply, apply an economic illustration to a divine truth. But there are not many gods minimizing all of their value. There is how many? One God, and that one God is intrinsically and eternally holy, unique, and valuable. Do you understand? There's one God, and because of his worth then we worship him, we ascribe our worship to him because he is so worthy of worship. And if that is true, then it would be true, wouldn't it? To say that if I choose to not worship God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, if I choose other gods or idols in my life that I will worship, 
then is it true that I am failing to see the worth and the value of this one true God? And I have diminished him. Second thing I would want you to understand is that we choose to worship God. It's not mindless. It's not robotic. We choose to worship him in light of his worth. But secondly, we choose to worship God in response to his work, his redeeming work. He says in Mark 12 and verse 29, Jesus answered and said, the first of all commandments is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord thy God. He says that this one, here's the great truth of redemption. Here's the great, here's the great truth of mercy and grace. This one unique, holy God is my God. And I can say that he's my God. I can claim him as my own, not because of anything that I have done. But we can say that he is our own for one reason only, because of his redeeming work for us on the cross. We worship him in response to his work. You shall love the Lord your God. I'm going to turn over to Revelation. If you'd like to turn with me, I'm in Revelation chapter 5. And I want you to listen to verses 9 through 14. Listen to the worship that happens in heaven. How that worth is ascribed to Jesus in heaven. I'm in Revelation 5 and verse 9. It says, and they sung a new song saying, here's the church singing in heaven. This is the bride of Christ singing in heaven. And they are singing these words, thou art worthy. They're ascribing worth to, to Christ, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. Why is Christ worthy? They say, for thou wast slain, for you were slain. So the worship of heaven is informed, it's informed by not just the singular, unique nature of who Christ is, but then by the work of Christ. What work is that? The work that he was slain. We sang this morning about the cross, how that we, we uh, worship God because of the cross and his blood that was shed there. Know this, that theme of worship will go on throughout eternity. Amen? We will worship him in eternity because he was slain. How do I worship him for his redeeming work? By remembering that he died for me. Is it a common thought of your heart? Is it the constant theme of your lips? Is it the constant song of your heart? Christ has died for me. Christ has risen. Christ has died. He shed his blood for me. That work inspires and informs my worship. Thou was slain. And then he says, or they sing in verse number nine, through your death, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. And so we worship him because he died for us and we worship him because he has redeemed us. We were far from God, amen? We were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, dead in our sins, having no hope, Ephesians 2 says, and without God in this world. But Christ died and Christ redeemed us. Oh, how my soul worships him because of his work on the cross. He died for us. And he redeemed us by his blood. And then he goes on to say, verse number nine, you have redeemed us by your blood from whom? From out of whom? 
out of every kindred and every tongue and every people and every nation. One of the things that informs and inspires our worship, listen, if y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. One of the things that informs and inspires our worship is that we are not cookie cutters. We didn't all come from the same place or the same people group or the same background. We have come from all tongues, nationalities, and, and uh, people groups. This is all over the world, people who have been redeemed. And he has made us of many nations, one nation, one people redeemed by his blood. And then he goes on in the remainder of this chapter to talk about the fact that Christ will be glorified in us forever, that we will reign with him. So here's the, here's the point. Jesus has asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? He says, here's the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is that you love God. Is that you choose an act of your volitional will that you decide to engage in, a, in, a, in an attitude, a heart for God that is endeared to him and longs for him and loves him. And you do that not blindly, not robotically, but because of who he is and what he has done. Here's my question to you. Will you choose to obey the greatest commandment that God has ever given? Will you choose to obey? And as you answer that question in your heart, let me help you understand just a bit about what that decision will mean for you, what that looks like. Second thing I want you to jot down is that not only is worship a choice, but as we make the decision to worship, we begin to realize that, write it down this way and I'll explain it. I'm not sure if this is the best way to say it, but it's, it's the best way I could come up with to say it. Worship is holistic. Let, let me tell you what I mean by that. Worship is holistic. Let me ask a question first, though. Do you sometimes feel like, do you, do you perceive that your life in general, your, your, um, your worship particularly, is segmented? Like your life is in slices, and so you have a spiritual experience, a spiritual part of you, but then there's a a non-spiritual or a secular part of you. And the way that usually sort of fleshes out is, well, I, I go to church or I go to worship on Sunday, but then every other day is just every other day. And I think about the Lord some, and I might listen to some worship music, and I might have my devotion, but really my spirit life happens on Sunday, and the rest of my life is essentially secular. Do you think in terms of worship in, in singing? We, we sing to worship. Singing is worship, but work is work. And hobbies are hobbies. And family is family. What Jesus would teach us is that true worship understands that worship is holistic. That we cannot segregate or, or segment our, our lives into spiritual and secular or worshiping and not, when Jesus tells us what it looks like to choose to worship him, he uses words that speak about the whole person. Look at it, verse number 30, back in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall choose to worship him. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And with all of your soul, and with 
all of your mind and with all of your strength. These words speak about the whole person. They speak about everything that we are, not a place where we go to have an activity of worship, not a song that we sing in a particular place or a, or a moment that we have in our part, some part of our day, but they are holistic. They speak to the whole of who we are. And so here's what he would say, that when we choose to live a life in obedience to this greatest command, where we love the Lord our God and we worship him, we will discover that we are to worship with our whole life. Worship isn't a song, it's not a service, it's not an activity in a moment. In fact, we worship God with our whole life. This is verse 30, when he says that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. The the scribe repeats it to him in verse number 33. And to love God with all of the heart, verse 33 says, and with all of the soul. It's my whole life. The word heart, by the way, does not mean I love God with my blood pumping muscle. I love him with my, I love him with both ventricles. (laughs) These are romantic terms. This is the way we talk about our spouse. This is the verbiage we use for those that we love. We say, I love you with all my heart. Ellie, our little, uh, one of our little granddaughters was, was at our house on Friday and she was sitting on my lap and we were just talking and playing around and, and, I, and I said to her, I said, Ellie, there's not another man on this planet except your daddy that loves you as much as I do. And then I said, I don't know if he loves you as much as I do. <laughs> but he does. And then I said to her, I love you with my whole heart. I didn't mean the parts of my muscle. I meant, Ellie, I don't love you for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. I don't love you when I just see your picture on Tuesday. Ellie, every moment of every day, I love you. And this is the verbiage that's used when we are commanded to love God with our whole heart. This is the idea that worship is every moment of every day when I lie down, when I wake up, when I'm sleeping, when I'm awake, when I'm working, when I'm in the yard, when I'm, when I'm fixing the car, when I'm engaging with my family, when I'm in every part of my life, I choose to love and worship God. It's my whole life has to do with my thoughts and my feelings, my emotion and my inner man. He says, love God with all your heart. Then he says in verse number 30, love God with all. This is the command. Love him with all of your soul. You know what the soul is. Do you know what Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, it says says that God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And Adam, a lump of clay, if you believe the Bible, shout amen. A lump of clay formed by the hand of God in the image of God, he became alive. And the text says in Genesis 2, 7, and Adam became a living soul. It goes beyond just my feelings and my emotion and my inner man. 
The word soul speaks to everything that we are. Are y'all with me? My everything that makes me alive is to be an act of love and worship to God. That means that everything that I'm passionate about, everything, translates into worship for God. It means my ambition, my hunger, my thirst, my victories, my disappointments, my anger, my work, my play, every moment of my life is to be an adoration, a longing for, a celebration of who God is and what he has done. And that means that when life is full of joy and all is going well and everything is good, I worship him for his goodness and for the good things in my life. It means that when I suffer immeasurable loss, when I'm feeling empty and and all is lost, that I fall not away from him, that I don't put my arm up and get angry at him, that in that emptiness, because he is worthy and he has redeemed me, when I'm lost and empty, I fall toward him and worship trusting in his mercy. It means that when my body is racked with pain and my circumstances filled with uncomfortable details, that I look to him, I flee to him for his help. And it means that when I am confused and I don't understand, that I worship him with an attitude of trust, a childlike confidence that he knows what he's doing, that he does all things well and that he makes no mistakes. And so all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, the empty, the full, the joyful, the painful, all of it turns to him and says, with all of my heart and with all of my soul, I love you. I worship you. What Jesus teaches us is the greatest commandment of love, and love is worship, to love God. And that that is not something we just do in a moment. It is our whole lives. But he doesn't just say worship him with your heart and your soul. He says in verse number 30, look at it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Thirdly, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Look at verse number 33. When the scribe quotes him, he doesn't use the word mind. He uses the word understanding. And to love him with all the heart and with all of the understanding. This is the intellect. So that my worship is not purely emotional. Hey, if you're listening, shout amen. You don't have to check your intellect at the door of the church. We worship God with our minds, with our brains, with how we think. The word understanding means how we put thoughts together, how we understand the world around us and our place in that world. The word mind means our reasoning or how we think. By the way, did you know that the the unsaved mind, the mind of the unsaved person, cannot think rightly about God. It's impossible. And scripture says this over and over. Colossians 1.21 says that before we come to Christ, we are separated from God, hostile in our thinking about him. 
doesn't mean to say that every unsaved person says that they hate God. It means that their thinking always ultimately comes back to me. It, it might even be thoughts toward God, but it ultimately results in whiplashing back to how does God serve and help and meet and bless me. Hostile toward him. Romans 1.28 says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, Romans 8, 7 says that the earthly, fleshly, carnal mind is hostile toward God. The unsaved mind cannot love God. The person, unsaved person cannot love God with their whole mind. It's not, it's not possible. But when we come to faith, when our, when our mind is arrested and our heart is convicted, and we believe the gospel, and we come to faith in Jesus, we are transformed so that we can begin, listen, we can begin as a new believer to think rightly about God. But even from the moment of my conversion, I can begin to think rightly, but then my mind needs to constantly be renewed so that I can continue to increase thinking more and more rightly about God. Would you say it's true of you that the longer you've been saved, the more rightly you've thought about God? I used to believe some of the dumbest things about God after I was a believer. But as my mind continues to be transformed, we can think more and more rightly about him. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Isaiah 26, 3 says, he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Psalm 119, 130, the entrance of thy word brings understanding to the mind. The Bible says that everything about my life, all that I am, all of my heart and all of my soul, not just the way that I feel and the way that I suffer and the way that I rejoice and the way that I hurt and the way that I win, the way that I lose, but all those things transform into worship and love for him, but then my mind, the way that I think, needs to be transformed by his word so that I can worship him with a renewed mind. You still with me? Shout amen. You doing okay? There's one other thing that Jesus says, and I'm almost done. He says we worship God. When we make the choice to worship him, we do it with, with our whole life. We do it with a renewed mind. Thirdly, he says that we worship God with all of our passion. See this in verse 30 again. Verse number 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he says in verse number 30, and with all your strength... Deuteronomy 6.5, it's worded this way, with all your might. Again, in verse number 33, the word strength is used. The word might means with all your intensity, with all your power. The word strength means with your force or your forcefulness. That when you choose to love God supremely and with all of your heart you begin to lean into him and love him and trust in him. And then with all of your mind you begin to think rightly about him and stay your mind upon him and settle your mind in his word. Then the intensity and the passion within your heart for him begins to grow with all your strength. And so I would say to you that our love, our worship of God should exceed the forcefulness with which we love anyone else or anything else. And so, when we choose to obey this greatest command, this command to love and worship God, we do so by engaging the will, remembering and extolling his worth, 
He is the one true God and his work. He has redeemed us by his blood. We enter into every experience. We expand our minds. We exalt him with passion. And our lives begin to take on the flavor of worship. So that what happens when we come together on a Sunday morning is just the overflow of a, of a room full of people who are just living lives in obedience to this greatest command. And the last thing in this passage that strikes me is that Jesus says to this, to this scribe that worship is life-giving. Worship is life-giving. Um, the scribe hearing the debate, and if you were to go back and read all of Matthew 22, all of Mark 12, you would hear the questions that they're, they're peppering Jesus with. Should we pay tribute to Caesar? Um, uh, we had a fellow we knew who had seven wives, and, uh, or a woman, I should say, who had seven husbands, and they all died, and whose husband will she be in the residence? They're asking all these, these crazy questions, and Jesus is just giving the answers, and this, this guy hears the answers, and he goes, man, this guy knows what he's talking about. So he comes and he says, uh, Master, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus tells him, and look at the scribe's response beginning in verse 33, verse 32. The scribe said to him, Master, you're right. There is only one God and there's no other but he. And if we love him with all of our, verse 33, our heart and our understanding and our soul and our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Listen to what he says in verse 33. This, to love God like this, is more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. Do you know what he's saying? He says, this is more important than the entire Levitical system of bringing turtle doves and lambs and the Day of Atonement and, and, and the altars and, and, and killing the sacrifices and burning them and sprinkling the blood and lighting the candles and pouring the incense. He says, put all of that stuff aside because what matters most is if you worship God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. He says, you can pack up the altar and you can put away the candlesticks and you can put away the sacrifices because God is more interested in how you love him. And if for you, church life has felt like religious routine, Christian experience just feels like monotonous routine. I just go to church. I just hear a sermon. I just sing some songs. I just serve maybe every now and then, but it's not fulfilling me. In fact, it is. It has the stench of death. Know this, that worship will bring you into a new life, a new experience with the Lord. In fact, I love that Jesus says to him in verse number 34, he said unto him, uh, I, I can envision Jesus leaning in close and going, hey man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You get it. It's not about all this stuff. It's about your heart of love for God. Loved ones, religion is dusty. It's dying. But worship, a life filled with worship, gives life. Let's pray together.